Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer, media strategist, and health coach helping you live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm Paula Crossfield, and I'm super excited to introduce you to my guest today, Brenda Kwan. Brenda is a yoga teacher living in Honolulu, Hawaii, where she is from. And she is also a PhD, a Fulbright scholar, and an award-winning writer with a background as a Reiki master and energy worker, and with over 25 years of teaching, writing, and literature. She is also very skilled at restorative yoga and yoga nidra. You can find out more about her at Brenda Kwan, that's K-W-O-N.com. And we're going to jump right in here and hear from her. We have so much to share. She talks about prana and how we relate to our own body and mind and spirit um, and give some really good tips about how to work with mental health issues. If you're an activist, for example, and you're trying to help further the cause of social justice, she talks about her own experience working as an activist and not seeing it complementary with yoga early on, but now seeing the brilliance of how those two things work together. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you, and I hope that you get a lot out of it. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us so that we know if this podcast is helping you. And and please share it with someone else if you think that they will enjoy it too. Thank you so much for being here. So I'm super excited to have Brenda Kwan with me here today. As I mentioned, Brenda's a wonderful yoga teacher, yogi professor, writer, all these wonderful things. And we're going to jump right in here and start talking about it. Welcome, Brenda. Hi, Paula. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. You and I have been on a lot of yoga retreats together. So I just want to start by talking about that. What was your first exposure to yoga? And is there like an experience that you remember that really made you feel like you were home? Oh, great question. They say that the yoga finds you as much as you seek it. And I had an exposure to yoga actually probably in my 20s was the first time. I was in LA and it was kind of the whole Shiva Ray. Everybody was so excited. It was the new thing. And while I felt good, it just didn't grab me. It wasn't a path that I went on. And for a lot of reasons, one of them being that I was in grad school and my depression was really starting to become something that I could no longer ignore. I started doing some other trainings and that's what led me into things like energy work and Reiki and uh, pranic healing and Qigong and all these other different modalities that I loved. And essentially that was carrying me through my 20s, my 30s. And then as I started to get to the end of my 30s, I had the classic, I know the word adrenal crash is now debated, but I had what you could call an adrenal crash. And I didn't know what to do. So nothing that I'd been doing before was working. And a friend was saying, there's a studio that just opened up in Chinatown. You know, we should all go after New Year's. And we did. And it was that very first practice where I could feel prana flowing in a way that I'd had it before. It got me back into my body when I had been abusing it for decades by overworking and saying yes to everything. 
And I knew that that was the path that I was going to stay on for the rest of my life. Well, that's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that and for talking about energy healing and prana because that's really where it starts, right? So Mm -hmm. you brought up depression. So I just want to ask you, like, has yoga and the energy work, has that been a really important part of healing that or working through that? One of the things that I appreciate about Dr. Svoboda and all of my teachers, but in particular, Dr. Svoboda, is his insistence that there is consciousness in what we think is inanimate. There is also prana in what we can't see. And I really understood how limited our senses are. And so once I became attuned to prana, and that was through things like poses, once you finish an asana, you can pause and you'll feel where the prana is moving. And it's fascinating to me. It still is. When I developed that sensitivity, all of a sudden I could tell where my prana was, how I was spending it. I just became more conscious. You know, if I was talking to someone and I felt very energized, then I felt like there was a flow there. And if I felt depleted, I understood all of that in terms of prana, where that was not really my language before. It was more like, you know, we vibe together or we have similar values. You know, I had a whole different language, which didn't quite fit. But once I saw it in terms of prana, it made absolute sense. And, you know, when I think about the choices that I make now, a lot of it is based on, do I want my prana to go in this direction or is it a waste of prana? You know, kind of a lot like shopping, honestly, like I think about it as money, (laughs) you know, is this where I want to put my money or not? That is like, I'm going to take that one and and think about that now. (laughs) Like, is that (laughs) the direction I want my prana to go in? One thing I know about you just being friends and having had several um, retreats together and be, you know, different places in the world. I've seen you have this amazing ability to come back into alignment again and again. Like when things get hard and you tell me what's going on, you have this serenity about you, which I've always been impressed with. So would you say that relates here? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? The reason I laughed is because in my head, right, I'm anything but serene. So it's a relief to know that it comes across that way because in my head, I'm just going, all right, you know, you just got to get through the next second and the next second. But that being said, I will say that there were a lot of challenges that got thrown at me this year that I won't go into, but they're extremely personal and very devastating and things that I did not think I would survive if they happened. And then I knew that, well, You know, there's a line from a book written by this author, Wendy Laoyong, and the first line says, living things prefer to go on living. And she says she got it from an article about a parachuter, I think it was, and he basically landed in the wrong place and he just decided not to die. It's very similar to the Viktor Frankl story, right? So when I was in those situations, I thought you can spend your prana freaking out or you can do what you need to do and feel better yourself and help the person who needs help and just essentially keep the flow going in the situation so that it doesn't stagnate or bring any of us down. So again, we're going back to the idea of seeing it in terms of prana. I think all of my trainings really brought everything together more comprehensively the more I started going deep into it because yoga means to join. And I really understood that if I change my breath, my mind changed. And then if my mind changed, my decisions changed. And if I did that, then my karma would change. And if my karma Mm. changed, I had a greater sensitivity to whether I was 
personally invested in an outcome or whether I was doing something because it was needed. So it just became this big cloud of things that formed itself into a constellation that really made sense. And it's surprising to me, and I don't mean to brag, but I'm surprised that I'm not a massive mess right now considering what went on. But I think it's because the prana continues to keep on flowing at this time. Well, I think I think we should brag. You're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in my younger days, the way that I coped was, you know, the usual things like substances, right? All, all kinds of abusive things. It's a really huge relief to find out that you don't have to do that. And you do have something that works way better. And also that doesn't have its negative effects. There's no hangover. You know, you just get clarity. The more you do it, the more clarity you have. It's hard to beat that. You know, at the same time, I think the challenge I'm having now is the self-compassion because I'm so concerned with, can I do this in a way that's proper and right and compassionate that I forget sometimes to forgive my own humanness, you know, in situations. So that's the piece I'm trying to work on right now. So let me ask you this, like when something's hard and it, you've just found out about it, and you're feeling stressed, like, what do you do now? What's different about, do you have a technique or do you have something you reach for that helps you in that, in that moment to kind of realign? Wow, I love that question. This may be super unsatisfying, but it is the answer. When I was studying with Rod Stryker, I remember that we would have these retreats and people would ask him questions and he would answer, but more often than not, he would say, just practice. That was his answer to everything. And it became kind of a joke, right? You know, so whenever you had a problem, you would just say, you know, just practice. Except he was right. Because Krishna Das says this thing about how you can't think your way out of a mental prison. And we're so trained to be cerebral that I think we try to do that. And so a lot of times it was shifting out of that thinking and going to the practice, whether it was pranayama and stabilizing your mind with your breath, or whether it was restorative yoga and learning to slow down or whether it was yoga nidra and learning to truly surrender, you know, it's like you, you just start using the tools that are there. And then this other thing happened, which is when you give prana the permission to do what it needs to do, and because it is more intelligent than we are, it does the job for you. For instance, um, this past summer, you know, there was an emergency that happened and I got called to a scene and I actually blanked out. My sister had to tell me what happened because I don't remember but I had an entire conversation with a paramedic, then drove to the hospital. I don't remember any of that, you know, but my sister was like, you were so calm. You were so together. And I was thinking, really, that's not me because I don't know where I was, you know, but that's the prana. And I find that it happens in other situations. And so like in a workplace situation, when, you know, there's some abusive behavior, I don't react because I think, you give the door or you leave the door open for prana to do it for you. And you're able to just kind of let go and let that decide things. And so I don't like to give myself the credit a lot of times because I think it's the prana, you know, I just get out of the way. And teachings like that too, you know, um, you know, when people say, how do you come up with this stuff? I'm like, oh no, it's not me. First of all, this is like thousands of years of wisdom, right? I, I didn't write a manifesto and come up with stuff. But I get out of the way when I need to. And, and prana is what tells you what to say and what to do. It's a beautiful way to live. It's so much easier. It's just surrendering is the key. But it's a hard thing to explain to someone. You just have to keep practicing and then it just happens. Right. That is so beautiful. And I think this kind of dovetails really nicely into 
a subject that I know is really important to both of us, which is social justice. There's so much crazy stuff going on in the world, and it's really easy to get activated. And so I could not imagine not having these tools right now. Every single day, I'm grateful for my practice. And that sort of speaks to what you're saying is you can always return to it. It's like a gift, you know, that your teachers have given you. (laughs) Right, right. So I don't know if you want to speak a little bit to that. Like, Absolutely. One thing I've noticed is in the spiritual community, people are starting to catch on. But there is this sort of thinking that we can just ignore the social or the political because we've somehow transcended it. And I'm just using the general we. I do not agree with that. But I see that. And I see people like putting up the black squares and then next thing next, you know, so this is a big question, but what do you think about that? It is all a that? big question, um, but, but it's so on the mark because when I was in my 20s, I was an activist and I was getting arrested and, and doing all of that. I was so angry and, you know, all I could do was see what people were doing wrong and it just frustrated me. And especially because one person cannot change an institution and it sounds sort of unhelpful, but I mean it in my head. I was like, if I just did the right thing, it was very egoic then this whole system would change. And that's just not how it works. So I started getting sick. I started getting angry. And I started looking at all these other people who were longtime activists and seeing how completely drained they were. And they had these beautiful hearts, but they were so beaten down. It was uh, heartbreaking, just heartbreaking because they were so amazing, you know? And so that's when I stopped and I thought, I'm going to go into teaching, you know, for my activism. And uh, I thought, if I can't do it through policy, then I'm going to go into a classroom and that's how I'm going to start to change things. So at that time when I was starting to leave, you know, sort of the work with policy and, and protesting, I remember thinking, there's no way that spirituality can exist with this because spirituality at that time had been excused to avoid responsibility. So to say something was karmic felt so criminally wrong because it was sort of like, oh, well, that's just how it's supposed to be. And it was an excuse for us not to act. And so that was my thinking then. And even as I was going through teaching, I thought, this is it. I can see the results. You know, I'm working with people. I can see how it's affecting them one-on-one. You know, it's a person. And spirituality was kind of there, but it wasn't really a major factor. Because again, I thought it's not really compatible with social justice work. And then it wasn't till I got really sick. And then I got into yoga that schism, you know, started to heal. And I thought, no, wait a minute, it's all about spirituality. You can understand something as karma, and that doesn't mean you don't do anything about it. You do something about it because it's right, but you let go of the outcome. Mm. In other words, I think when you're doing activism, when you think about things as win or lose, you're setting yourself up for failure because this battle has been going on for a really long time. And that's exactly what it is. And so you might think, okay, you know, I might not get the outcome that I want, but I commit to calling out when things are wrong and I commit to helping people who need it. And then if you do that, then that's what keeps you going. But the second you start thinking about results, and that's karma yoga, right? Don't get attached to the outcome. The second you think about it, that's your downfall. And so when I started seeing how it worked together, then when I was strong enough and when I was ready to come back, I was able to act, but without being drained, you know, without being defeated. Um, It doesn't mean I didn't have emotions, 
but it didn't kill me the way that it did before. And then I thought, wow, how crazy that one point I thought these two could not exist. Right. So how do you talk about that with somebody who's not quite getting it yet? And what do we do? Like, you know, how do we kind of lead the way? I know you're doing your work, as they say, and I'm doing my work. Like, what's after that? It's kind of the the same thing of there's some people who are not going to get it when you say it or ever. And so I try not to get too, which is hard. I try not to get too bound into whether I'm going to change someone's mind or not, but I can explain something and then leave it at that. And that means you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And that's still something I struggle with because I just want everybody to be happy, right? When you say something like, this studio only has white teachers and I'm one of two people of color, you're not accusing anyone, you're stating a fact. And what that person hears is, is really not your business, you know? It's difficult because I think, you know, you still get caught up in this idea of, to change things, if you just apply more force, that's what will make things better. But there's a lot of situations you can even think about mechanics or any delicate things of art that you're creating. Force is going to destroy the whole thing. It's not going to make it better. There are times you need a very delicate hand. You know, these days I try to approach it with a little bit more of that. You know, it's also because I'm older and I'm more tired. But, you know, um, totally. You can't shame someone into justice. You know, it doesn't work that way. You can talk about your story and you can talk about the facts and then you just leave it at that. Sometimes they'll get it, sometimes they won't. But you have to make that commitment to say, I'm going to say something when something is wrong. And I'm going to help somebody who needs attainable goals. You know? Yeah. And that's the difference between being 20 and being older than 20. Yeah. <laughs> in my experience. Um, so I'm a big fan of your writing. You're a writer, right? Would you call yourself a writer first? Do you feel like that's uh, Does that no, feel like I never, you know, again, yoga, I never thought of myself as a writer because, you know, I'm not one of those people who writes all the time. I don't want to get published. You know, I don't have those usual hallmarks, but I knew that I could write and that, you know, a lot of times people seem to want to read it. And then when I got to yoga, it was like, oh, okay. When you just open yourself, sometimes the Shakti comes out this way. Writing became another expression of yoga, which is, you know, what does Shakti want to express right now? So I don't think I of myself as a writer, but I think I can write. Well, I love your work. And it's so much about being Thank a you. Korean American, living in Hawaii. You know. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like the sum of breathing, for example, this is one of your titles. So talk about like what that title means to you. The title was, it, it was yogic, surprise, you know, and it was, who am I up to this point? You know, the yogic idea that you have so many breaths in your lifetime, you know, what's the sum of your breathing at any point in your life? And it's not a lot about what Rod Stryker says quite a bit, which is that you are the sum total of your decisions. And I was trying to reflect on those decisions to see what I had done with things like trauma and depression and sadness and anger at injustice. And it came out in so many different ways. The thing about that book, though, is like it was a compilation of things that I'd written over a huge period of time. And the editors asked me, could you put some of your work together? So a lot of it at that time was not current. It was stuff that I'd written, again, when I was in a little bit more of my activist phase. And, you know, when I was struggling with body issues and in a bigger way. And 
it was nice to see the progression there. And at the same time, I have a hard time talking about the book because I just don't feel like it's me anymore. It was particularly hard that because I used first person so much that everyone thought everything was autobiographical. I was like, oh, no, no, no. A lot of it's based on stuff, but a lot of it's also stuff that I had to tell in a way to convey what was going on in my heart and in my head. And the thing about being Korean that I think was seminal to that is that I never felt like I belonged in Hawaii. And Hawaii is supposed to be the Asian paradise, right? If you're BIPOC, welcome, you know? Except when I was growing up, you know, you really didn't have that. It was a dominance of Japanese and Chinese. And I didn't know a lot of other Koreans. And I, I just felt like this kind of outsider. And as much as I could fit in, I also felt like I didn't. And that was something that really messed with me in a lot of ways, you know, and also going to private school and, you know, all kinds of things. And so I was dealing with that sense of disconnection that I think affects everybody, albeit in different vehicles. And so when I look at the work, I see myself trying to figure out, well, how do I connect? You know, all of those stories and all those poems are about that connection and how do you find it when it's lost? And I think that's in a weird way, something that applies to everybody, again, no matter what the vehicle is. Totally. And your writing is so beautiful. It's like, it feels just like a joy to read. You know, it doesn't even matter so much to what the content is like, I know you're so disassociating with yourself, but it's just such a beautiful unfolding. And so that made me think of prana again, if we come back full circle and you're saying, how does the prana or how does Shakti want to be right now? And like, that can be something, some piece of writing. So can you talk a little bit about like your process with writing? Yeah. Um, I didn't write for several years because I didn't have anything to say in that way. You know, I stopped going to things like writers' conferences because people would talk about the number of words that they wrote every day and which writers they were reading to look at things like form and structure. And I was sitting there going, I'm such a fraud. I don't belong here, right? They were talking about the publications they were going after. And I just thought, I really, I really don't belong here. And then I just started realizing, look, just because you have a different process doesn't mean that you don't belong here. And my process was much more spiritual, which is when... I have something to say, I'll say it. And then I went so many years without really, again, having anything to say in that way. Until very recently, when you know, I became a caregiver for my mother. And there are all these things that are happening because there is the classic role reversal where you're caring for your mother, but also sharing space again and having the ghost and the legacy, you know, again, residual prawn patterns of how you were with each other are things that you have to actively engage with and let go so that you're not living in the past. You know, there was so much going on and I found that I couldn't talk about it conversationally. It's like, I would try to explain it and I just couldn't. And I'm not particularly good at drawing, you know, it was the words. And so I just started writing it. And it was in that way that I felt like this is exactly what I'm trying to tell you. And look, it came out in a poem and it was better than anything expected. So it's a lot about trusting that you don't have to produce all the time. I think that's also our weird, like puritanical heritage, you know, work, 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 you know, and also our capitalist thing about you always have to produce, but you know, you don't, you know, art is not something that's on demand, right? It comes from someplace and you have to be in a field where it can happen. And you're also okay if the field doesn't have anything for a while. 
That strikes me as very much going against the patriarchal norms, the white supremacist model. You know, it's like an invitation. It sounds very cyclical, very feminine, rather than like lording over and willing over, demanding that it be there. Yeah, I love that. That makes sense. Yeah. When you follow the moon, it can support your energy and your mind. Get the free moon guide for 2021 at weaveyourbliss.com and find out when the new and full moons are for the upcoming year and get remedies to help you. Just go to www.weaveyourbliss.com and it's at the top right hand of the page. Enjoy. Well, can you talk a little bit about yoga nidra? Because I know you're really into this and you said something earlier, like just being present with the prana or something like that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's my favorite. Thank you, because I could talk for hours about this. Um, so yoga nidra, when I first practiced it, I didn't get it. Like I knew that my teacher would start naming body parts and then I'd fall asleep and then I'd wake up and I felt great. And I had no idea what was going on. And I started studying it a little bit more and it was in my teacher training. And then I went off and did more trainings and it just became a bigger and bigger process. And what it is, is undoing the idea that we are the masters of our destiny, which I know sounds kind of messed up, but we think we control so much more than we do. Looking at nature and seeing that, yeah, a tree controls a certain amount, but a lot of it is just letting nature do its thing and remembering that we're beings of nature and that we have to remember that that's actually our programming as well. That changes everything, but that goes so against the grain of everything we're taught, you know, which is you have to plan things out. And if something went wrong, then your plan was flawed, you know, and if you don't try, it's all going to stop. It's actually going to start decaying. You know, all of that stuff is so opposite of yoga nidra. But what I love about nidra is that you get to a place where your mind, you just surpass your mind. Your mind is asleep, your body is asleep, but your consciousness is there. And when you go to that kind of spacious consciousness, then those thinking patterns fall away and you start to develop the neural pathways, new ones that teach you about allowing and surrendering, which are two terrifying things for most people. You start to trust that if you sit back and allow, okay, then the result and what happened was so much better than anything you could have planned. And so Yoga Nidra teaches you to be in that place of remembering that you are part of a larger picture, that there is a lot we don't control, and that if we offer to that control, then, you know, we become what we're supposed to be, you know, because your head gets in the way. Like, you know, there's so many friends where, you know, we talk about things we're having problems with, and, you know, I have to remind them as I remind myself, your head's kind of just being a jerk right now, so don't listen to the jerk. Yoga Nidra, you go past that until you start to recognize more easily when your head is being the jerk. You don't listen. But it's so effortless. That's the thing that gets to me. It's so effortless. It feels like you're just taking this magnificent nap. And then all of a sudden, things start changing. (laughs) Like, I still remember. And and they keep going. Like, most recently, I was telling my yoga students, uh, I watch Cheers reruns sometimes as a way to just, you know, turn off and just, you know, stop thinking. And I could never stand Diane Chambers. Like she always bothered me. I always thought I get that she's playing a character. 
but she's so annoying and all of that. <laughs> and it's been that way since the show was on and when I've watched any reruns. And then recently I was watching it and I was thinking, she's so funny. I'm like, she's perfect for this role. And I was like, wait a second. And it was like, I was almost trying to hate her because I wanted to know where it went and I couldn't. That's magic. That's what Yoga Ninja does is suddenly you're just different about something. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. It really is. I feel like everyone needs to do it. It's so cool. So tell me this. Okay, you've been teaching yoga live for a number of years, and this year has been completely different. So how are you adjusting? And is, has it been surprising to you what has happened this year in, in your teaching? Again, I think it was the, all right, I could either freak out or I could just do what needs to be done. And so even before we went into lockdown, I left the studio because I just wasn't comfortable asking people to come see me in person. And I jumped on Zoom. I was like one of the first people who go, hey, let's let's try this. Really, my only commitment was to be there and to keep practicing. And it was the trust that things were going to work out. They actually did. I have a group of regulars who are wonderful and they've supported me over this year and they continue to support me. We're not in person, but in some ways it's made the idea of prawn stronger. You know, we so overestimate physical presence. It's not that it's not important, but we overestimate it. And when we're sitting there in a practice and we're breathing in the beginning, you know, I often ask them, can you feel that there are others in different points, not near you practicing? And that synchronicity makes you go, oh, yeah, you know, we are connected, if anything, by space. The space that I'm touching is the space that that person is touching eight miles away. But you start understanding, oh, yeah, no, we actually still are connected. And so it's been beautiful for that, which is, oh, yeah, it's not just about the sense stuff. You know, it's about energy. So it's worked. I've made it work. I'm happy with it. But I'm also highly introverted and super happy staying home. So right. I think like, you know, we, we have a population that that has been able to really thrive with it. And I feel kind of lucky that I fell in that group. That's beautiful. So I want to ask you some quick kind of rapid fire questions. Are you open to that? They're easy. Yeah. Well, maybe not easy, but you know, <laughs> they're they're ones you can answer just in a second. Okay. They're not they're not ones you have to dwell on too much. Okay, let, me, let me put my vata down a little bit. So, like, <laughs> okay. All right. Whenever you're ready. It's just like a switch. You can go, okay, go down vata. Is that what you're telling me? Got yeah. It. No, I'm trying to like calm my vata so I don't start going, well, maybe it's this or this, you know? Yeah. So, okay. Well, what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? Learn to trust your gut. Oh, that's a good one. Okay. So what is your favorite hot beverage? Coffee with the MCT oil and a little bit of ghee. Good choice. That's one of my favorites too. Your last meal on earth would be what? A bowl of kitchery, some chai, and then lavender honey ice cream. Ooh. <laughs> it just feels comforting, you know? Yeah. All right, now you can go, you know? I'm assuming you have a morning routine. Most yoga teachers are doing a little yoga or something. Is that the case? And if so, what part of it is non-negotiable? Oh, so the dinacharya is non-negotiable. And so it's just an automatic, you know, that you'll uh, do the neti pot, that I tongue scrape, that I oil. There's the water with lemon and I started adding some honey, you know. So those things are just a given. Things like the meditation and practice, it varies depending on what's going on with my life. So right now it actually happens in the late afternoon because mm -hmm. I have to care for my mom and do all that first. But the dinacharya is just a non-negotiable. So tell us about one person who inspires you and why. 
There's a big wave surfer named Brock Little, and he passed a few years ago. And his brother is Clark Little, who is very famous wave photographer. So their mother, Doric, and I worked together at HCC. She passed last year, and I, I miss her all the time. This is a woman who was born in the Midwest. And so first of all, she can make friends with anybody. It's amazing. She genuinely cares about people. Like I never see her make small talk. I see her have conversations. Uh, she's very feisty and forthright, believes in doing the right thing. She's not afraid of what people think about her. There were so many things that I learned just from watching her. And I thought she is the biggest badass that I've ever met. And she was this beautiful, devoted mother who didn't want her kids to be anything in particular. She let them flourish and they both became just huge, huge accomplishers in their fields and their passions. So yeah, there was a lot that I learned just by being around her. She didn't even know. I love that. What does it mean to you to be living in your purpose or to be doing what you're meant to be doing, what we might call Dharma? So that one was tough because I think you're right. And a lot of people are right about saying that it's defined almost as career nowadays, which is not really what it is. It's the thing that makes you you. To go back to a predictable answer, it was Yoga Nidra. I started realizing, well, when do I feel that I am the most surrendery? I know that's not really a word, but <laughs> you know, but when does that happen the most? And it was when I was teaching. And I thought, oh, okay, that's it. You know, when I'm sharing which is also, you know, nurturing somebody like my cats all have various things missing and I just love them to death, you know? So that's when <laughs> I feel the Shakti comes through the most, you know? So when I'm nurturing and teaching, because again, you're chronically sensitive and you realize, oh, okay, this is where it's happening. That's when I realized, oh, okay, this is what it is. So something people might not know about you. I have a California and a federal arrest record. We'll leave that one there. <laughs> No, it was for protesting. Oh, okay. Um, but that's the one I like to, yeah, that's the one I like to share with my students. And and then I feel horrible because they'll come to me and tell me like, oh, you know, really, thank you, miss, for saying that because, and they'll tell me their story and I'll be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. No, I was, I was protesting. Nothing like what you went through, you know, anyway. Um, so tell me a book you're reading right now that you love or one that you've read recently. There's a book that I started reading about um, depression and it's called Lost Connections. Um, the author I'm going to have to look up, his last name is Hari. And this is somebody who was diagnosed very early and then got on the medication train and believed, like we all do, that there was an absence of serotonin and these medications would put it back and then he'd be fine. Except that he recognized that he wasn't fine. And it's true when you're on meds, you, know, you still have your cycles, you still struggle. So he really got to the nature of it and he saw that depression was actually a survival mechanism born out of experiencing trauma. And it's mind-blowing. You know, I'm still going to take my meds, but it shifted the way that I see depression. So it's called Lost Connections. And we'll put that into the show notes so people can check it out. The last question on the rapid fire is, what is one thing that brings you joy right now? So we kind of have talked about a few things, but if you want to share one thing that we aren't already aware of. It's my cats. You know, they're just little aliens in cat suits. And it's <laughs> fascinating and wonderful to communicate with them. I'm always happy to see them. You know, they're just, yeah. It's animals, of course, you know, across the board. But right now I live with three cats and they're really the joy of my life. 
Is there anything else you want to say? Like, I don't know if you want to talk more about mental health or you want to share some things that are helpful for you. Going back to the mental health thing, the reason that I resisted medication for so long, so I was supposed to have started in my 20s and I thought, no way, because I knew a very good friend of mine had bipolar and I saw what she was going through and I thought, there's no way I don't want to go on meds. And that's why I did all the energy work and all that. Then when I got to yoga, I thought, okay, this is it. My problem is finally solved, except that I was still falling into these periods, you know? And so I was really, really resisting and I didn't know what to do. Um, So I talked to three teachers and they all said, take the medication. They were saying, Mm. this is a hard world. And if that's going to fill that gap for you, there's nothing wrong with that. One of my teachers said, you know, the divine comes in a lot of different things. And in your case right now, it might be that pill. That was really beautiful because I think I had so much shame because there is this almost, I think it's changing now, but there was this dominating idea that you can yoga your way out of depression. Mm-hmm. And if you just have the right pranayama and that you'll, you'll just, you'll, it'll be fine, but it wasn't. So I think it's good at treating some things, but you know, there are other people who kind of suffer more seriously that that kind of thinking can be really damaging because I still had, and still to some degree, some shame about having to take meds. You know, like maybe I'm not that great a yogi then, or not a yogi, maybe I'm just not that great a practitioner. That's something I think we need to be a little more attuned to as yoga teachers is the dialogue around anxiety and depression, which I think is, I forget, but there's so many people afflicted by it now. Oh, it's rampant. It's like the one, it's going to be the most prominent disorder that people face like by a next year or something. I have to look that up. But I heard from Dr. Scott Blossom, you know, when they did their Ayurveda and the microbiome, gut brain health, like they were talking about that. It's not a joke. And right now all of us are, you know, under different varying degrees of lockdown. It's the pandemic. Nobody's going out. Mental health is real, and we definitely need to be talking about it in in yoga circles and more broadly as well. Right. You know, and avoiding that toxic spirituality thing of like, hey, good vibes only. Well, you know, that's not how life works. Not always sunny. It's there you go. Right. And so if you're not willing to look at the hard stuff or the shadow stuff, I don't know how deep your practice is going. Totally. And that comes right back to the conversation on social justice. <laughs> like you, you have to acknowledge that there are things in this world that are not going well and that we need to help all beings be respected and feel good in this world. Mm-hmm. That's part of the yoga, in, in yeah, my opinion. Absolutely. So tell us how people can come to your online classes. I do finally have a website. So it's Brenda Kwan. My last name is spelled K-W-O-N dot com. And uh, I have some things about Ayurveda and writing and also doTERRA, you know, so we love the essential oils, our plant friends. So anyway, my class schedule is on there as far as how to register and all that other info. So brendaquan.com. I also have an Instagram, which is brendaquan underscore yoga. Beautiful. I could talk to you all day. (laughs) I feel like there's so many other (laughs) topics. Like we could have talked about essential oils and our skincare routines and all kinds of things. So I'll have to have you back on the (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Next time. Totally. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you, Paula. I really enjoyed this. And have a good day. You too. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantula-Desma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode. Thank you.